G'day, guys. Welcome back to episode 54 of Life's Emit. So last week, I spoke to one of my good friends, Bon, a former uh, Australian veteran who served in the Army for over six years, and he spoke about the dark side of coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder and things that can happen to you after deployment. So check that out. Check out his, um, his music and check out his animation. He's a creative guy who's just an absolute, he was very generous with his time. And uh, I'm sure he would really appreciate your, your time and effort and checking out his uh, socials, of course. So this week, I think I'm meeting my number one fan. Um, so uh, this, my next guest and I first started interacting. She heard me on the Fake Doctors Real Friends podcast. You know, of course, I was uh, charming as hell with Zach and Donald as what I do. And we get chatting. And um, as we're chatting, I realized that she's, she said to me that she's an English literature professor and who has a doctorate in children's and young adults literature. If I've got that wrong, I'm sorry. So basically, That's- basically that makes her a professor in storytelling, as I dubbed it. She giggled. She's like, you know what? Yes, that, that's correct. So who better to have on the show than someone who could, who literally teaches the art of storytelling? I'd like to introduce Sarah Whitehays or Professor Sarah Whitehays. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is exciting. Not a problem. So just, just so we uh, get to know you as a person first, as you know, you, you've listened to every episode. You've said you're all about this. It's um, true. So first things first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what, a, what was it about storytelling that interested you in studying it and doing it as a career? What was the genesis of your fandom what was the first thing you were a fandom of oh that's a good question yes uh my like you said i'm dr hayes that's what my students call me i'm a college professor and i teach children's lit young adult lit my secondary specialty is british lit so i'm hang on are you saying are you saying you teach people to get lit is what you're saying (laughs) that's right that's right (laughs) yo we gonna get lit up in here (laughs) (laughs) well you know i i joke around i say my classes are lit (laughs) <laughs> if that's the terminology then cool we're going to get lit up in here yeah yeah my kids my my students uh, love it <laughs> my 18 and 19 year olds are so impressed <laughs> with my slang. that's fantastic like, register my classes they're lit <laughs> no, preach it <laughs> yeah so that's what i do I, that's my career i teach um literature classes on the college level I don't know if they call it college in Australia. Do you call it university? Yeah, we got colleges, universities, um, uh, and a less like a there's a like a trade school called TAFE, which is kind oh. of like your yeah your trades and agriculture and things I like this. Yeah, I don't know that they do literature at those. Oh, they probably do somewhere. I um I'm certainly not the one to ask in terms of English literature. I I struggle to spell my own name, so <laughs> all good. Right. So my talking about story, my parents are both, they're retired English teachers as well. Literature teachers as well. Oh, so you literally carried on. That's cool. Yeah. So it's, it's in, it's a legacy job. My grandmother was a school teacher in a one room schoolhouse in the country. Um, Like, you know, a little house on the prairie, like a one room schoolhouse. Um, And so then my parents were both school teachers, my dad, high school, and my mom college. And so it was kind of destiny, I guess you could say. I, when I first went to 
undergrad and, and first started going to college, I intentionally did not major in literature and English because I didn't want to do what my parents did because I thought it was so predictable. So instead I majored in film studies. So my first degree, my lower, my bachelor's degree is not actually in literature. It's in film studies, which also really, they go well together. Film studies in a lot of universities is under the umbrella of the literature department anyway. Um, But then when I went to grad school for my master's and my doctorate, I did the literature route because when I was an undergrad, uh, I totally got obsessed with the college experience. Like I loved being on the college campus and my mom taught at the college where I went. So, so I felt you were, very... you were a, a modern day Van Walder. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <clears throat> yes, exactly. And so I was like, I know I want to be on a college campus for my career. I want it somehow. I want to be on the college campus. So I went the professor route eventually with, with grad school. And, um, I, the reason I chose film studies when I was an undergrad is because I used to be obsessed and I still kind of am, excuse me, I I used to be obsessed and I still kind of am with movie previews. So like trailer. trailer. trailer, Yeah. Yeah. I love movie trailers. And um, I went to school and I thought, I want to maybe make those someday or um, be involved in making. I didn't really want to make movies. I wanted to make movie trailers. <laughs> like that's what I want. And I, cause I think that there is a specific art of storytelling in the trailer. Like the, it's its own art form beyond the movie. And well, so is. I want, I, go ahead. I was going to say it is, it's the, it's the front line to try and you, not only do you have to like, sell the best parts of the story but it just that you have to sell it and then you have to yeah. be convincing and you have to make it look how many trailers have you seen they got this is awesome the actual movie sucks mm-hmm. happens all the time i was so interested and i still am where you could make three or four trailers for the same movie with using footage from the movie but it would look like a com- four completely different movies just from how you cut the trailer together and which scenes you pick, what music you put behind it, you can make you can make it look like any kind of movie. And I was just fascinated by that art, my, that art form. So that's why I chose the degree I did in undergrad. But I ended up not doing that. <laughs> um, but I that, that's just kind of an initial foundation of my interest in storytelling, which is why I even brought that up. But I for grad school, I ended up majoring in literature because I wanted to be a professor. Okay, and cool. so uh, I, I don't know, I had this fantasy of myself in this kind of dusty office, you know, with a desk and students would come in there and hang out and there'd be books everywhere <laughs> and stuff like that. So, and that, you know, I do have that now. I have it all. I just not messy because I'm a Virgo and we are not messy. <laughs> I have a, I have an office and, you know, bookcases and a plant and a refrigerator and a, a big wooden desk and you know it's decorated <laughs> so it's and students come and sit in there and, and hide and cry and <laughs> stress out and and ask for advice so i and i'm sort of living the dream as far as that goes i'm getting um, uh, indiana jones kind of vibes yes yes yeah. that was a that was a good that was a big influence i really yeah yeah those that's a that's a favorite indiana jones and i'm trying to think of other iconic professor see i don't know you always there's always like the eccentric professor that everybody loves and has professor, like, professor xavier there you go yeah 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 there you go 
I don't have any superpowers, but no, none that you know <laughs> of yet, though. So right, none have emerged. No, none have emerged. That's, so, just before we get into the nitty gritty of storytelling, I'm just curious. Can you just explain to me because I don't understand it fully the difference? Or you get a, a bachelor's degree and then mm-hmm. uh, honors, masters, then a PhD. Can you just in like briefly explain the difference in terms of what they are and if that makes sense? Sure. I mean, my experience is in the United States, so That's I mean, right. I don't know if it's, yeah, it's different anywhere else. The biggest listener fan base I've got are in the United States, I believe. So. Oh, okay. Cool. So you're after you graduate high school, you can um, generally, if you don't go to a trade school, as you mentioned, technical school is another thing we call it. You would go to um, you get your bachelor's, which is your first four year degree. That's your standard first degree that most people go for. And the first two years of your bachelor's are general education, like, you know, literature, math, history, science, things like that. And then in your last couple of years, you pick a major and you can major in literature or history or biology or um, education, you know. So to if you, when we say someone is college educated, they've got their bachelor's, right? That's their, the major college degree is your bachelor's, it's your four-year degree. Um, then if you want to go on to what's called graduate school, um, the four-year degree is called undergraduate. And then graduate school are master's and doctorates. Uh, the master's degree, it, sometimes it's abbreviated as an, an MA in something or an MS in something. And it usually is two to three years that it takes to get a master's. And it's specified in one area. Um, like there's no general education classes and, but it's, it's sort of an intermediate specialist degree. And then the doctorate is the highest degree that you can get in any given field. And uh, like, there's nothing beyond doctorate. Um, you can, it's the highest degree you can get in any given field. It usually takes five to seven years to get a doctorate um, at, in addition to after your master's and you finish your doctorate, most doctoral programs, you finish by writing a dissertation, which is like a book. You basically write a scholarly book and, you fin- and you're considered a doctor in your field, an expert, you're considered an expert in your field once you get your doctorate. So there's three main tiers of education, the bachelor's, the master's, and the doctorate. There you go. I guess that answered your question. See, what, what I get of that one, you must be incredibly patient is what mm. I get it. Two, mm. you know, kudos to you for having the patience and the stones to see it out. And Thanks. three, um, you know, mad respect. I am. Um, I I've only ever attended trade schools. I'm a coal miner and I'm a I before that I was building roads and sort of like landscaping. So I guess I'm a landscaper by trade unofficially. My trade is road building. So, you know, and it's interesting. No, you probably you probably went the right route. You probably are much more secure in your career than academics are <laughs> there's plenty of well, it's funny to say that because a, 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 a majority of my friends who attended uni um are in the medical field somewhere nursing mm-hmm. or practicing my, I, my cousin's a pharmacist and an optometrist um but a lot of them who went to uni or college or whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. um have had to 
do a different like career because there was no work, uh, mm. especially in times now. COVID is an absolute shitstorm, and um, but no, like fair enough, and and good to see you doing well. And it was funny we had a we had a ten year reunion for high school. Um, oh gosh, four or five years ago now, and mm-hmm. um, one of the guys in my year won't say who he was. He knows he's a smug prick. Anyways. He's like, oh, yeah, he's rocked up and he's, you know, how's it going sort of thing with this demeanor of like, I'm better than everyone else here because I have my master's and whatever. I was pretty sure uh, it was a master's of being a dickhead. Anyways. <laughs> he, Don't um, all dragons have that? Oh, I haven't got a master's in it. I teach it. <laughs> <laughs> he, um, oh, he's rocked up. And I don't know how, but the, um, the subject of salary came up. I don't know why. Mm. And well, it's a reunion, of course it can. <laughs> let's, let's let's get out our financial penises and compare. Even the women were doing it. Right? It was ridiculous. <laughs> Bad metaphor. I'm sorry. And um, I don't know why, but he's like, oh, yeah, and this much. And I'd not long got back from traveling, and I was in the mines, and I'm like, mate, I wouldn't get out of bed for that. Why would you <laughs> brag? And I've never seen someone's ego deflate so quickly. <laughs> it was hilarious, and I realized, hang on, I've got a skill for doing this. So. And like Mitch, Mitch, oh, he's been a, okay. Watch this, guys. I'll get him again. And just absolutely um, had his uh, his number that night. I can assure you. He towards the end, he had a few beers, and he, he's like, "Are you trying to undermine me?" I'm like, "Speaking about mining, my salary is bigger <laughs> than yours. <laughs> I would get out of bed for it." <laughs> you brought up mining. Oh, <laughs> uh, and he's like, they even said like, even since school, you've been the pun master. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm Mitch Kelly. That's been going on since school. Mm-hmm. So, but anyways, I digress. Okay. Uh, so yeah. professor of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Now, this is a question I like to ask a lot of people. What was the okay. first thing you were a fan of? Book, game, uh, movie? Take, um, take I, us back to young Sarah. To... Younger oh, Sarah, sorry. Yes. Thank you. you go. <laughs> yeah. You look good for you look good for 22. Oh yeah, thanks. <laughs> um on pop culture wise, I would say Doctor Who was my earliest fandom. You familiar, Doctor uh, Who? Yeah, I actually um, spent oh. a bit of time in Wales and uh, in oh, Cardiff. Yeah. We we did the, the the Doctor Who walkabout tour in Cardiff. Yeah, That's yeah, cool. I've been there. Um, it was. I used to watch Doctor Who because you know it's been on since 1963. It's it's one of the longest running shows. But I so I used to watch it with my dad in the 80s. I was born in 81. So you know, when I was a kid in the 80s and early 90s, yeah, that's when you know I'd watch reruns of it on TV and you know, whatever it was on TV. And so my dad and I used to watch Doctor Who. And then when they they brought it back, like they revamped it in 2005. And I've been a huge fan ever since. So you can't see this, but my office door at my work is a full TARDIS. Like I ordered a, a decal for like special, um, specially measured for my office door at work. And it's the TARDIS door. Um, <laughs> That's fantastic. It's full, full, yeah, I ordered it from London. And my phone case, I'll show you, is the TARDIS. <laughs> That's cool. Um, yeah, I have Doctor Who stuff all over the shelf up here um, in my library. And in the bonus room upstairs, I have a full-size wooden TARDIS. Do you say you've got that, a bonus room? Yeah. <laughs> what the hell's a bonus room? The bonus. Like, buy three, I'm, buy three, 
why house with three rooms and get one free <laughs> maybe that's an american thing i don't know but houses have what's called a bonus room and it's just it's where you go hang out it's kind of like a media room like a spare room know. kind of thing like a hobby well, yeah, room. there's no bed in it it's you just it's should... just couches and and tv and it's like the playroom bonus room media room you go hang you go there to hang out that's the only purpose that exists <laughs> buy a house with three rooms and get one free yes yeah, the bonus <laughs> that's fantastic i might have to walk you around here in a minute because the bonus do room do my it. house is there's a full-size TARDIS up there and it has a working light and everything and it opens up into a bookcase my dad made it for craft that's cool but i also have huge like huge um artwork decals of of the, all the marvel characters on my my wall up there hulk and iron man and captain america so maybe i'll have to show you but so i i became obsessed with doctor who from a kid and then now that's my hugest fandom everybody knows that about me i've got tardis everything everybody at campus knows where's dr hayes oh go look for the blue door she's in the blue door because <laughs> you know, my building is over 100 years old it's an old old campus but um so everything is like wood and <laughs> just you know this old stately huge tall brick um clock so it's tower. it's keeping with the tardis theme and going back in time yes exactly. thank you very much i'm mitch yes. <laughs> exactly exactly oh, fantastic. Um, yeah so it would be doctor who so doc you know just the the genius plot device that they came up with to be able to recast the main character over and over and over and keep the story continuous that is i mean just chef's kiss i mean that is amazing the 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 innovation of that and doctor who has always been um very innovative and, and ahead of its time storytelling wise character development um scene setting a scene you know so yeah doctor who is my earliest fandom and it's still my current big fandom i like that that's cool mine mm-hmm. um I've spoken before about mine's like an anime called Techno Man, but the longest mm-hmm. running consistent one is Star Wars as well. Because I, oh, the, yeah. the first Star Wars movie I saw was, uh, I think I was six or seven in episode one. They played it, you know, those old wheelie carts they'd bring into school. Mm-hmm. They had the VHS mm-hmm. and the TV. And I'm going, what the hell is a Jar Jar Binks? And like, <laughs> oh, I like Saber Fights. And we don't speak of Jar Jar Binks. <laughs> And it's like, I had a Star Wars game on my Game Boy and I got home and it's like, I started speaking to my older brother. He's like, yeah, man, these are the, so we sat down and watched, we watched the VHS tapes of four, five, and six. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. this is cool. Mm-hmm. And he's like mm-hmm. trying to explain to me what a prequel was. I'm like, oh, lightsaber fights. And <laughs> I've deep dove since I've got what the literature, um, I, you know, the, the shows on Disney Plus, like your Rebels, your Clone Wars, uh-huh. your things uh-huh. like this, games. And that turned me into a comic nerd. And so I've got mm-hmm. plethora of DC and Marvel comics, variant comics, you name it. And I've come to love The Flash is my favourite oh, uh, yeah. superhero because I think it's that whole seamless time, uh, time travelling, you know, sorting all mm-hmm. your problems out, running really quick. And my favourite, mm-hmm. you know, um, Marvel MCU character is Dad Bod Thor. I'm like, that's my yeah. hero. <laughs> Played by yeah. an Australian and he's fat. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm in this movie. <laughs> hey, I, I'm like, when that came on, I was like, I'm into this. Like, did I just discover something about myself? 
I, I, one of my lines on Tinder is I say I've got a, an uncle bod. It's dad bod adjacent, but just as comfy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's true. I'm not a dad, but you know, I can use that line because it makes sense. Mm-hmm. People get like, that's funny. So tell me about yourself. Ooh, let's go. <laughs> but uh, anyways, I digress. So <laughs> yeah, super like to me. So I wanted to, I wanted to ask you, um, okay. to you, you know, speaking, uh, speaking it, teaching it, living the life of this storytelling as a profession, as well as a fan, what do you think are the good elements to make up a story? Uh, is there like a, a universal umbrella sort of structure they must follow or to you, like in your personal versus your professional opinion, mm-hmm. what do you think are some of the good elements and layers that must go into a good story? Yeah, that's a good question. So the reason we have, we as human beings, the reason we have told stories has evolved. You know, you, you, stories used to be functional. It was a way to preserve community wisdom. It was a way to pass down wisdom to the next generation. And it, and we they were told in story form because it was easier to remember because they didn't have any, they, nothing was written down nothing was recorded and so framing something in a narrative made it easier to remember um as you know as the stories were were passed down and told and the lessons were absorbed more easily in story form and so we see that a lot with some of the older tales from the oral tradition that had some sort of a um moral that was uh, you know, it was it was couched in a story. Sorry, I'm just turning the fan on. Oh no, you're fine. And so we, you know, we it would be some, it would be uh, disguised. So, for example, Little Red Riding Hood, really old story. We don't really know where it started or where it came from, but uh, you know, on the surface, it's a oh, it's a little girl and she's in danger, and there's a there's a wolf or a grandma and all that stuff, but. You know, the theorists who are looking at this and folklorists look back and say, oh, no, it was probably meant for um, as a warning, you know, because Little Red Riding Hood was a girl who was old enough to go out on her own for the first time. And her mother was warning her to avoid strangers and that there are predatory men, you know, in the woods who might um, take advantage of her. So don't stray off of her the path she's been shown but she does anyway. And so she gets devoured by a predator, right? So there's a lot of um, underlying lessons in a lot of these old stories. Um, uh, Beauty and the Beast is a, basically an analogy of arranged marriage. Like you're going to be, your father made an arrangement for you to go marry someone who you don't like and who's scary to you. But if you're, if you're patient and nice, you will grow to love him and see past the surface. It's basically a lesson about arranged marriage. Yeah, so, I never thought about it like that, but you're right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, that's, that's what it is. And so a lot of the stories, these, the stories in the oral tradition had a function that they served and they, they were meant to convey some sort of moral edification to the next generation. Well, we don't, tell stories for that reason anymore so the the element of a, what makes a good story i think has changed um i think you had a, you had a guest a while back and i don't remember which one it was but it, 
I think it was a she was talking about Joseph Joseph Campbell's um, Hero with a Thousand Faces, and that is the um, that was a text that came out in I think the 1960s, and it changed. I think that was uh, Heather Roma. Shoutouts to you, Heather. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a girl, and she was talking about the Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell, and that is something that we we still talk about the the mono myth, the the structure of home away home. The hero starts at home. There, there's some call, there's some catalyst that makes them leave home to go on some sort of a quest. And they encounter obstacles and adversities. And sometimes they have a mentor and sometimes they don't. And sometimes that mentor dies and that leads them to their next faith. And they go through all of these adversities and then they eventually return home changed in some way and they're able to affect their community in a positive way because of the change that happened to them on this journey and when you start looking at you're like oh my gosh that's literally every story that's every story it's harry potter it's the hobbit it's star wars it's, it's every story and it's very prominent in children's literature as well this um and home can be just psychological too you're in a comfortable place that's familiar to you and then you are you learn something new or you're exposed to a new person a new knowledge and your mind is is called to a greater purpose which without ever physically leaving um where you are so that i mean so anyway the home away home structure and the the joseph campbell's monomyth we're we love that structure for some reason and i mean it goes back i mean the the odyssey in greek greek classic greek mythology it, we love the structure so plot wise a great story seems to have a calling of some sort there's some larger purpose or glorious purpose as loki would say that we are that we are called toward <laughs> and so so plot wise it's Yes, thanks. <laughs> but we, I, I want to say that modern audiences, my perception has been this and the scholarship seems to support it, that modern art, modern audiences are not as concerned with plot anymore as we are with characters. Like we care way more about, like if we relate to a character, if a character is compelling to us in some way, um, if the, if the character undergoes some sort of a, um transformation that's how that's what we teach i teach my students um, sometimes it's a little tricky to identify who's the main character of the story who's the main character of this movie and it's tricky to identify that sometimes but i always tell them look for who look for the character that changes the most if there's a character that changes in some way that's usually that's our protagonist that's our main character um and so side note hope you don't mind if i go on a tan tangent but i <laughs> I um, try to convince my students every semester that I'm pretty sure that Thanos is the protagonist of the Avengers movies that he's in. Because... At least, at least, at least in Infinity War, he is. Yes, uh, uh, yeah, there, it's like the two part Infinity War and Game. You know, the the in, in Game Infinity War, I guess is how it goes. But with the the two part two part Avengers that thanos is in i try to convince them that thanos is the protagonist he's the main character he's the hero of the story because he's the one who goes on a journey the most like he's he's the one who um has like um a past motivation he's the one who has a plan 
he doesn't think he's a villain. Like he doesn't see himself as a villain. He sees himself as a humanitarian. He's, he's trying to solve a problem that he sees. So he sees this unsurmountable problem and he's going on a systematic journey, tracking down all these stones, these infinity stones (laughs) to try to solve this problem that he sees he's being um, humane. That's the humane way. It's random. He's not picking who is, snapped out of existence he's not picking who dies it's just completely objective get rid of half of every planet and we would it's we solve our resource problem and he's very tender to Gamora when she's orphaned he takes her in and he has two orphaned children daughters that he takes in and and trains and, and raises and then and he doesn't understand why he's receiving all this opposition so all the other characters who are supposed to be our heroes the avengers they are basically just on the defense the whole time like there's this threat coming thanos and we've got to fight him Mm. and how do we do that (laughs) and so there's not really any much a lot of growth that happens there there's a little bit with like the relationship between loki and thor and their the brothers and loki kind of redeems himself at the end and that's that's like where the previous movies come up to you know Mm -hmm. so like the, the thor story arc you know and then Iron Man, it's like you see them evolve. So I guess, mm-hmm. you know, that the whole Endgame Infinity War thing, you know, mm-hmm. tells the perspective of Thanos because, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's the bad guy in all the previous films. And you mm-hmm. get, that's what I think good storytelling is. It's making you feel sympathetic to a antagonistic uh, protagonist, like if you will. It's similar with um, Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. They give this... Um, have you seen Into the Spot? Oh, you would have seen it. Um, the, yeah, the animated one. Yeah, with um, and mm-hmm. so you got uh, Kingpin, who's this gargantuan version of himself, and they give him a like a like a real human sort of like he just wants to bring his family back because mm-hmm. they unfortunately saw him do something evil and they passed away in a car accident. And it's like, well, something simple as just trying to bring your family back, like you know, it's mm-hmm. one is brilliant writing too. Um, you know, invest you as the character, uh, as the audience member. And like, you're like, no, no, don't do that. And then these mofos had the stones to kill Spider-Man in the first 10 minutes. I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if that's baller or not, but, right. but I don't know. I just, uh, but what you say is true. Um, and just talking about like um, uh, the progression of time and how stories have changed. Now, was it the original um, nursery rhymes? that mm-hmm. now to mm-hmm. this day are for children but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um i don't know if it was it aesop's fables that originally were the dark versions of the the nursery rhymes i'm not sure who wrote them but like um for example was it humpty dumpty the mm-hmm. original version was about like uh massacres and and religious mm-hmm. war mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. this um maybe that like maybe the reason they were changed was because they've got this ip or in an intellectual property and okay. people people just I, I well correct me if i'm wrong here but why do you think it was is that these these stories that were written in an original concept were changed to be more pc towards children do you think like um there is an answer for that <laughs> good Go on. I, you, you said you were tangenting my lord me trying would to you say like, would you like the answer yes i would please okay <laughs> so the answer is it's rooted in how we have conceptualized childhood itself. And so ch- childhood and children 
did not used to be looked at as a separate, innocent phase of development. Children used to be treated no differently than adults. Like, um, <clears throat> they, it, we, they didn't understand that there was any sort of cognitive difference between uh, ages, like a child and, a, and, a, and someone who has grown. And that's why I used to see people would get married, especially girls would get married off very young and um, young men, young boys would have to start working very young. And so there didn't really used to be much uh, difference between a child and an adult. And there wasn't really stories that were, it, would, it wouldn't have occurred to anyone to make stories that were separate for children versus for adults. And so all of that changed around the, the turn of the century, the end of the 1700s into the early 1800s. Um, I don't know, some of your listeners, you might have heard of the Romantic movement, uh, the Romantic poets in England, Wordsworth and Coleridge and, and all of them. Well, part of the Romantic movement at the turning into the 1800s was the concept, the emergence of this concept called the, the romantic child. And the romantic child was this innocent set aside figure. And so the romantics, specifically Wordsworth, had this um, idea that childhood and children were fresh from heaven and so they were close to the divine. And so the closer, the earlier you are, you know, the younger you are, the closer to heaven you were. And so the longer you're on this earth, the more corrupted you become by influences of the earth. They were influenced by John Locke's blank slate theory of like, you're born with a blank slate and then everything that happens to you writes on your slate. Um, but anyway, this, this romantic child um, concept I can't even, I can't overemphasize how it fundamentally changed the paradigm of how we view childhood in, in general, just a, across the board. And so what happened was the educators, um, religious groups, parents were like, okay, if that's true, we need to preserve this childhood and protect it as long as we possibly could, you know, keep them from anything that would harm their their mind keep them from anything that would um taint them and damage them and, and make them impure in any way and so um this thing arose in the victorian era called the cult of the child where childhood was almost worshipped as this this divine supernatural period right and so that is when Ch children's stories began to be specifically scrubbed of anything that was that would um, threaten their innocence and their purity. Um, so the uh, a, a big indicator is the the Grimm's, the Brothers Grimm, the the fairy tales. You hear the Grimm's versions a, a lot of times. Um, those came out in 1812, 1812 and 1815. There was two different editions and they were pretty grim <laughs> at first. And then, but then this idea of the romantic child started setting in and they realized, Ooh, these are, the children are liking these stories, but they're, you know, there's a little, they're not really appropriate anymore. And so they re they edited them and reissued them toward the middle of the 1800s and scrubbed them clean of a lot of the earlier um, 
you know, chopping off toes and Cinderella and plucking out eyes and all that kind of stuff. So you could um, say it was the original <clears throat> censorship board. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that's well, you know, the genesis of, you know, rating movies and stuff came from what it sounds to be from this meeting of, of storytellers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, I mean, we still think of childhood in the same way today because of you know the romantic child like childhood is innocent it's protected we need to try to keep that purity as long as we can we see it in, in pop culture and stories for children going far back um you know it comes up in peter pan you know the the lost boys they're they're forever children right we see it in uh narnia where once susan gets too old she can't go to narnia you have to be a child to be able to go to narnia we see it even as late as um polar express once you get too old you can't hear the bell you can't hear the bell and polar express and so you can't go to the north pole you lose your belief right so this idea of there's some sort of a supernatural ability to access the divine and access magic and to see things that adults can't see. So that's a common thread in children's literature that children have this perception and this awareness of another layer of reality that adults are too old and they've been too impurified by the world to be able to perceive. I'm sure that you've encountered stories like that. Oh yeah. I I mean, I was uh, shattered when I found out that, Peter Pan was dead and he was pretty much the angel of death. So <laughs> transferring <laughs> souls to heaven. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, I am shook. <laughs> ouch, my oh, childhood. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're exactly right I, though. I mean, I think back to some of the earliest story arcs I was a fan of, um, you know, Pokemon, you know, this is 10 year old kid who never seemingly grows up. who goes on to be one of the world's best Pokemon trainers, etc but he's still a kid. So they still want to make it relevant, even though he's been on the airways for 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just like, well, for goodness sake, mate, either it's <laughs> time goes very slowly in, in Pokemon world or, but like, I think that if they have a, a character uh, that is a child, I mean, the audience can see themselves represented in that form. So, oh yeah, mm-hmm. he's a kid. I'm a kid, you know, I'm throwing Pokemon Pokeballs on my, on my Game Boy. Or whatever, mm-hmm. but like maybe maybe that's the reason. Like the the author, the the composer, the writer, whatever it is, whether it be a song, a show, a book, a series, whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the idea is to tell a caption, you know, an encapsulating story, captivating story, right? Is a better word. Mm-hmm. And you want to try and uh, include as many people as you can. That's why I think similar for this podcast is like it's different topics, but the one common trend is that everyone has a story to tell. And mm-hmm. you've just given us a, a brief history of, you know, the the innocence of children and storytelling like that. That's an interesting, like, to know. I didn't, I had no idea that was a thing. And that's cool. Like, and yet you think about the evolution of storytelling in general and, you know, as technology changes, you know, we, we, we find ourselves telling stories in different mediums. I mean, every man and his donkey has an animated show now and it's glorious. <laughs> um <laughs> And but like you know when when I was a kid when you were a kid cartoons were a little bit more uh, rarer than what they are today and like CGI and all this all these things but the fundamentals are generally a protagonist antagonist 
you know, a sympathetic storyline, a plot, you know, some, some sort of conflict, some sort of conflict that they have to overcome. To get over it, and then we're all, uh, you know, having we're all having beers at the pub at the end of it. How good? Yeah, <laughs> I think the newest evolution in in this arc is the age of the antagonist, the sympathetic villain. Uh, we, I think it arguably it started with Maleficent like the first Maleficent, you know, and the, there's been two now, uh, but you had the descendants on Disney channel. I don't know if y'all have that on there, but it's the children of all the villains. Um, Jafar's. We, we used to have it. We used to be on. Uh, so every weekday morning, there was a cut in show, two big ones called cheese TV on one channel and mm-hmm. Agro's cut in connection on the other channel okay fast forward to a saturday morning there was disney there was disney mornings and you got about four hours of just disney animated okay. shows i'm Ms. super lami uh, i'm going back to oh gosh um like the animated toy story series um mm-hmm. uh, you know if you, it was it was 80s and 90s disney cartoon it was on there like the lion king nice. show and etc yeah so yes yeah. we did get it just in limited bites yeah well the, the- the latest one I would say is the Cruella, the the movie about Cruella Deville from the Hundred and One Dalmatians. Yep. I don't know if you've gotten that down there yet, but on Disney Plus we do, yeah. Yeah, it's the backstory of Cruella. You know, the the from the cartoon movie and the book that was before it. There's absolutely no way to root for Cruella. She's not a sympathetic sympathetic villain in any way, but they've managed to make this boss movie. <laughs> Cruella Deville, and now my daughter, my middle school daughter, is like, I love Cruella Deville. She's so cool. Growing up, I would have never thought that was possible. Cruella but... Deville, Cruella mm-hmm. Deville. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen it yet. It's so good. <laughs> I haven't seen. I was like, I don't get me wrong. I saw 101, 102 Dalmatians, and like, mm-hmm. um, but for me, the the Disney animated movies I was super invested in was The Lion King, Aladdin. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I, I I was a Nickelodeon kid, so mm-hmm. Rocco's Modern Life, uh, Rugrats, right? uh, yeah. Hey Arnold, uh, not Hey Arnold as well, but separate. But like Ren and, uh, Ren and Snippy, Ren, our real monsters, and all this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a um a stuffed animal of Chucky from Rugrats. Oh. <laughs> he's the main character. He was my favorite character. The Ranger. <laughs> we call uh, redheads Rangers. Oh really? <laughs> like orange, like a, so. There's a series called Summer Heights High, and um, there's a character called Jonah, which is portrayed by Chris Lewis, like a Tongan stereotype, pretty offensive mm-hmm. and racist actually. Oh, but okay. um, he calls he's a orangutan miss. Look at his orange hair. He's a fucking ranger. And oh, um, ranger, so ranger, ranger. Okay, so was that a common Aussie slang? It is now. After it was incepted in that show, it's become part of Australian pop culture. Okay, I got I a friend. To, I got I a friend who's impress my students because I have a student who's from Australia right now. Call him a ranger, and he will lose it. He's he. We call him gingers, but he is ginger AF. Like he is. He has bright red curly hair. He's That's from good. Melbourne. That's he's good. from Melbourne. He's there playing soccer. He's here. He's here. Well, there's, I'm like, there's can't, three can't, Australian can't. terms to call redheaded people. Rangers is one. Fanta okay. pants is another one. Okay. And like the drink, Fanta. Yeah, because yeah, Fanta, okay. the carpet matches the drapes, and God, okay. Fanta uh, pants, Fanta okay. pants. 
And maybe um, I wouldn't call my college too. Like. And uh, Ruben Redpuben is another one. Ruben Redpuben. Red Red Pubes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. It's picking up what I'm putting down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I got we're you. Pretty, we're pretty. Uh, we're pretty. Savage my gears are turning, and I'm seeing if I would get called to HR by referencing one of my students' pubes. <laughs> Probably. But uh, no, he, rank, I'm rank like, you came to Tennessee. You're from Melbourne, Australia, but you're you're living in Tennessee, playing soccer, going to our my college. All right, sure. Why not? That's cool. so I told him I was like, oh man, I I listen to this podcast, you know, from Australia, and he's like, That's, I think he was shocked too that I, uh, you know, had any sort of understanding or knowledge of Australia. I used to be obsessed with Australia. What do you mean? Real talk. What do you mean used to be? Well, <laughs> like I was a weird kid who was what, a, like what, what, what was it, about, what about Australia was uh I don't know. I'm talking when I was a little girl, elementary school age, I had a poster, like a map of Australia in my room. And I had like stuffed koala bears and I <laughs> pictures of like kangaroos. And I was obsessed with Australia as like a, like little girls have like ponies and unicorns. <laughs> but i had australia stuff i I did a report about australia at school like we could choose anything we wanted to do and i i did australia and i wrote uh, then in like in i remember in fourth or fifth grade i wrote a paper all about like aboriginal culture and stuff like that i used to be obsessed with australia oh yeah i'll tell you so today someone shared a, a story there was a service station armed up with a guy who was using a boomerang i mean how australian is that <laughs> i'll send you the the link oh, it's it's legit um that's cool <laughs> and some guy yeah. held up a service station with a boomerang so that's awesome um, that's australian as i mean yeah i i, I um <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't know what the stereotype is but a lot of my american f- uh, friends are like they they're seemingly gullible and like do you do you all do this no what how did what do you think we ride kangaroos to work (laughs) we share ubers with them what the hell is wrong with you y'all are obsessed with wombats though i'm convinced because wombats are amazing (laughs) okay fair but i there are a lot of classic australian children's books about wombats (laughs) well if you have any uh if you have any well, conception of Australia, I'll debunk yeah. some Australian myths for you if you wish. Like, yeah, sure. So yeah. if you have any. So with wombats, um, with wombats, they are that I like wombats because they're like me, short, stocky with a great ass. And they actually kill their so say if they've been hunted by a fox, what uh-huh. they'll do is they'll lure the fox back to their burrow uh-huh. and they'll go in head first and their ass will be exposed. And after oh. the after the fox's head is shoved in there trying to bite it, it'll use its ass to either crush the fox's head against the top or the bottom of the burrow. So that their natural defense mechanism is their bum. Cool. And uh, they they say a lot of single men are like uh, wombats. They eat root and leaf. <laughs> so the Australian term rooting means to to bang. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So if you're, okay. a, if you're a single guy on Tinder, banging around, you're a wombat because you eat root and leaf. Okay. Okay. I'm learning. I'm learning. This That's is what good. we know about Australia. Vegemite. Amazing. Crocodile Dundee. <laughs> See, look, Crocodile Dundee is like, oh, yeah. It's kind of a, a, a shitty stereotype. That was never yeah. true. We don't, we don't, you don't see shrimp and prawns. We, 
they are, you know, cousins in the in the world of whatever group of animals they are. But we don't actually eat shrimp down here in the southern hemisphere. We eat prawns. Now the, mm-hmm. the difference is shrimp are more straighter in the body. Prawns have a tail that circles around like this, and you don't okay. put them on a barbecue. For fuck's sake, you boil them. You don't put shrimp on the barbie. Don't. <laughs> that was don't, my don't, bad. <laughs> don't start me. You don't put shrimp on the barbie. You boil them. You eat them, and you have a good time. Okay. Okay. We quote Crocodile Dundee all the time. <laughs> Basically, the that's not a knife. That's yeah. a knife. <laughs> but like that's all that's all the, the that's the big stereotype that a lot of people had to go on, which it's funny, like yeah. um, you know, dang wrong, you've obviously you call that a knife. This is a knife. Right. Um <laughs> very funny movie at the time. <laughs> we still quote that. I think I said that like within the last month. <laughs> it's like pass me the knife and you know my dad or somebody and i he handed me like a butter knife that's not a knife (laughs) this is a you know whatever um yeah so it 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 has longevity and then we also have steve Irwin. may you rest in peace yes we have steve that we love we we i will i would die for steve steve Irwin's whole family we love him and the the walkabout we hear about the walkabout all the time. Is the that bars, a real thing? The, the walkabout bars. Oh, well, yeah. I've been to walkabout in London. <laughs> I, I used to work, I, I used used to work, to work one. in one when I was yeah. in Liverpool. Yeah, we. But, I did a study abroad for my master's and lived in North Hampstead outside of London for like a whole summer. And there was a walkabout less than a mile from where I was staying. And so that's where a bunch of us would go after class and stuff. And it was one of the fun because they had uh, karaoke. And so some of the f- most fun I had in London was at this walkabout. Place. For those of you who are unfamiliar, walkabout are a chain of bars through the UK that are Australian thing. Uh-huh. And uh, Foster's is everywhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have we have Outback Steakhouse. That's the Australian themed. And the commercials are always the guy with an Australian accent and using various and the, are you familiar with the outback steakhouse have you heard of that yeah we so every pub here serves steak steak's not a big deal here but you can go get a nice fine steak but most pubs will serve you a good slab of steak oh oh wow um, but yeah it's, it's seemingly i don't know if it's more common to get it here but steak has always been fairly accessible and back in the okay. 70s and 80s my mom and dad would say to me that chicken back then was like a was a delicacy and oh, lamb, was, lamb was the poor person's meat. Come forward to today, chicken is a is an everyday thing, and lamb is a delicacy. It's funny, yeah. Um, yeah. But steak's always been readily accessible. I mean, you can go. I could go to my local supermarket and get a good sirloin, like three or four hundred gram, for like six bucks. Oh, that's maybe why Outback, because Outback is the name of the restaurant. It's the chain called Outback. And and that's all Australian. So then maybe because steak is so prevalent there, that's why they call it Outback. But they have um, the the blooming onion. The, have you heard of the blooming onion? Sure have. It is amazing. <laughs> but they they don't call it, it's blooming onion like they say it. With blooming. Like a, See, with... blooming isn't really said that often. But you know, it's like that. Eat this blooming. Are you are you from India? Then get this blooming <laughs> onion onion India like. <laughs> but yeah you have to say you can't just say blooming onion you have to say blooming onion you have to like put the stank on it the australians hate this on. bloody onion you dickhead <laughs> <laughs> right that's that's england 
<laughs> no, that's that's Australian. That's no, bloody. Do y'all say bloody as a as a probably more than English people. We are very much. Well, we are descendants of the English people, of course. But that's true. Stereotypically, you know, the swearing, the 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 passion about sport, the Fs and C bombs, and all this and that. Mm-hmm. We are it's very similar. It's funny, um, but bloody this, bloody that. You know, you're right, mm-hmm. mate. As hey, go, yeah. mate. Like we, it's the same. Kiwis are similar as well. Hmm. Um, but uh, cool. yeah. If, it's, it's cool. Every time I've been to South America a few times and every time I've been to South America, the, the people there would ask, they would try to guess where I was from and they would guess Australia. See, so, I don't think it sounds similar at all. I don't either, but the, um, I guess something about the South American ear, they can't differentiate between a, a American South accent and the Australian. They, they guess Australia wow. whenever I, I mean, I've, I've yeah, like it's all about perspective. It's like we're not from there, so we can never truly understand. But like a lot of even a lot of Australians don't realize is that Australia has a different few accents as well. For oh, example, yeah. the further west you go, the rougher it sounds, eh? Uh, like, so if I was from Adelaide, I'd sound more like this. I say oh. room and not room. If I'm from Melbourne, if I'm from Melbourne, I'm like it's more accentuation on the E's and the A's and hey, how you doing? You know, but if you go out west, like to the outback, yeah, mm-hmm. nah, how you going, Sarah? Yeah, nah, it's all right. Eh? Like, it's, I probably wouldn't understand what they're saying. Probably not. <laughs> so I'm from, I'm from a town that's a little bit west in my state, New South Wales, and we moved to the coast in Newcastle, and so I've got a probably a thicker accent than normal uh, compared mm-hmm. to some other city dwellers, I suppose. I don't know. But uh, yeah, but Australians have different accents. Then you get into Tasmania and it's more like accentuate, like they extend their O's and E's longer as well. Hmm. And it's just little things like this. And like same as New Zealand, you go all the way up top to Auckland. How you going, bro? How's this and that? And you go all the way down to like Dunedin. And it sounds like more South African than anything. But oh, yeah. there's still a var, it's, you know, Texas as opposed to LA, you, your accents are going to be different. Oh, Manchester yeah. to to like say Dover, they're always going to be different. It's just different variations of of uh, inter- uh, dialogue. Dialogue. And I I that. Know, but I, actually, that's related to storytelling because every you know every way that the language has developed has a story behind it. Like there's a reason why you know there's some. Can you give an example of that or a few examples? Um, I know that this is sort of an anecdote for, not for Australia, but for England, there was, um, I'm talking about like in the Anglo-Saxon period when English first started. Um, I, I know that there's a, there was a, there's an anecdote about, um, people living on one coast. If they traveled inland to the other side of England, it's not that big of a place, you know, it's an island, but if you travel from one coast to the other, then you, it would be basically like another language. Like you couldn't understand what they were saying, even just that close together. Um, and, and um, I know that in England, the English, the reason English first started, this is a little story, you know, storytelling because the reason English as a language first started is because um very briefly romans and roman missionaries king arthur all that had invaded the great britain the celts wanted to try to get them out the celts who were already there so they hired um germanic 
mercenary tribes to come over and try to roust out the Romans. And so the Germanics, there was four separate tribes, the Angles, the Saxons, the Kents, and the Jutes, and they all kind of understood each other, but not really. They spoke different Germanic dialects. So they had to come up with some sort of a common way that they could all talk to each other because they were all working for the same boss, basically. And what what came out of that was early uh, Anglo-Saxon English. Um, and so the English language was born out of this necessity for these hired Germanic mercenary tribes who were hired by the Celts to come in. And the, but then they got there and they're like, hmm, we like it here. <laughs> we're going to stay. <laughs> You're welcome for getting the Romans out, but we're going to stay now. Um, and that became, you know, England is where they where they settled that's cool. so that's so that, that's an interesting so i'm sure that there's similar stories in new zealand and in australia and i'm sure there's something similar I yeah, and, and, and further to that as well it's like uh if, if anyone has tried to learn italian spanish french uh, portuguese um a lot of the languages uh, i think german's a little bit separate could be wrong here don't fact check mm-hmm. me don't at me, guys. But you hear people trying to learn a language and they say, oh, there's there's similarities between, say, mm-hmm. English, oh, so Italian and, I don't know, Spanish, say. I, I've no idea uh, if that's true or not. But I've heard people say that there are, you know, certain words might be the same. And, mm-hmm. you know, the English language has adopted different, like Grand Prix, mm-hmm. for example, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And, like, mm-hmm. just things like this that become terminology used in various languages. So maybe that for that reason there's commonality i've no no idea but um i do it, have an idea if you'd like <laughs> please do please do so great. the the romance languages uh, spanish and french and italian romanian I, I think there's probably one more latin they're all latin based those are romance languages so they're latin based uh english and germany the uh, german those are uh, germanic languages so the grammatical structure is completely different and um you know so they're structured uh, in, a, in a different way however the, the vocabulary of english is deceptively romance it's deceptively you know it's similar to spanish and french because in the Roman, the sorry, the Norman invasion of 1066, France took over England for like 200 years, and so a lot of the vocabulary, you know, English almost died. Like there, there was all the laws were in French, um, all the court proceedings were in French, um, church proceedings were in Latin, so there wasn't really anybody who was literate in English for a couple hundred years, um, and then. One major contributing factor to this was uh, we get a, in the 1400s, uh, we get a plague, the Black Death in the 1430s. And so the Black Death killed off so many people uh, that um, it led to a rise uh, of the um, middle class. There was no middle class. You had peasants, you had clergy people and you had aristocrats right you had royalty and aristocrat landed titled people um with the kill the black death that killed off so many people um for example in a village where you would have four or five shoemakers you might have one shoemaker for like three villages and so that shoemaker was making bank and so it allowed for these lower class people who spoke english they had income they became business owners and magnates and they they could um 
they became more wealthy. And so you had this um, wealthy middle class that they weren't titled in any way. They weren't the aristocracy, so they didn't speak French, but they had money. And so they could commission poems, they could commission artworks and plays in English. And so English kind of was saved in part. That's, it's reductive to say that, but it's English, the English language was uh, saved by the plague, sort of. <laughs> you know, that's a, a simple way to put it, but yeah, so that's why English has so many French influences in its vocabulary is because France ruled the court and the laws of England for the longest time. But you're, you're looking at the end of the 1400s, going into the 1500s, laws were written in English again. So you see, this is why I get guests on like you. Mind blowing <laughs> facts. My brain just melted from that information <laughs> overload. And I swear that those people who uh, were seemingly murdered out, who didn't really know how to speak English properly, I think that is migrated to Australia because we still don't know how to, we still don't know how to speak English properly. <laughs> you probably feel like my student, one of my students right now. They probably feel like their mind is melting. I tell them all the time. I I catch myself going off on a thing, and then I I say, okay. I realize you probably feel like you're drinking from a fire hydrant right now. <laughs> it's hard to take all of this in. Um, don't worry. If you have questions, let me know. <laughs> so I apologize if I just went. No, that's cool. Always, always speak. Shoot your shot. Never, ever. <laughs> I mean, hey, you're asking me stuff I know about. So yeah, you're doing fine. If it, like, to be honest, the best guests are the ones I find who give information willingly and that mm. like the, the contribution that you're making and like it's, it's, it's golden content and seemingly makes me look more intelligent because I bring yeah. people with high IQs on and mine seemingly goes up. So it's fantastic. Well, you're like, helping out because you're bringing stuff up and you're like, no, I don't know about this, but it seems like so-and-so. And then I can say, I do know about that. Would you like the answer? The yin to my yang. Yeah. <laughs> and I sound intelligent and I'm asking, so go me. Now, we might might change it up for a little bit. You know, okay. Karate hands. Yeah, as you know, this podcast has two sections. Mm-hmm. Great storytelling, which you've been extremely kind to give us a, a history lesson. Uh, mind-blowing facts. Mm-hmm. And uh, talk about some of your fandoms. But I was wondering, Sarah... Would you like to join me in having a bitchy with Mitchie this week? I would love to. I'm not going to make you wait. I know you've got something ready to go. So would you like to start things off for us? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a super fan of your podcast, as you've said. I've listened to every episode. So I know. Oh, thank you. Oh, here we go. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to mention traffic because everybody talks about that. Um, but I was trying to think of one that was and truly inconsequential, like, <clears throat> like a first world problem, like you say, or just something. And so I thought of one that was storytelling related. And so people, when they talk to me, they assume that um, when a movie comes out, that's been based on a book that I'm going to be all up in arms and have something to say about it. Right. And because most of the time, those adaptations are disappointing, right? The adaptations of a, of a, movie made out of a book Um, but I understand that that a movie is a different storytelling medium than a book and so I get I understand that concessions have to be made rewrites have to be done that doesn't bother me even when they cut out whole chapters they cut out the whole end of Lord of the Rings 
the Ready Player One, he changed every scene almost in Ready Player One for the movie. So I understand how things like that have to happen. But what grinds my gears, <laughs> I can't do Peter Griffin. What, you know what, my what gears. grinds my gears? <laughs> yeah, I can't, I can't do Peter. What grinds my gears? Hey. Um, yeah. <laughs> Is when there's something easy from a book, like an easy, easy detail to include and they change it for seemingly no reason two examples come to mind i'm sure there's tons and your listeners are probably like she didn't mention so and so but two examples come to mind one of them is aragon i don't know if you saw the movie of aragon oh that uh that uh man of the west speech in return of the king oh oh not aragorn aragon oh era the dragon yeah sorry yeah Yeah, i've seen i've seen the movie the two aragon movies i have seen Yes. So, Sorry, Erica, so yeah, they sound the same. Um, that's a whole other conversation about how derivative Christopher Paolini's Aragon is, but I'm a huge fan. I'm a huge fan. He came here to Nashville a couple years ago and I went and saw him and fangirled and he signed all my books. <laughs> but um, anyway, so in the movie, the girl, um, the princess, um, she is described uh, Aria it's very true aragon and aria as opposed to aragorn and arwen i mean i see you christopher Pelling. but anyway <laughs> um aria the main elf princess and aragorn aragon see i did it in aragon she's described over and over and over and over in the book as with her black hair it's a part of her character her her the her people call her you know raven locks because she's like the only elf that has black hair they all have white hair but she's set aside because she has black hair and it's a part of her identity it's part of her title aria ravenlock or something like that she has black hair in the freaking movie she's a what is she ranger is that what she said oh, she's rang- no, not ranger rang like i at the end ranga ranga <laughs> That's it. She's Ranga. A, she's a filthy Ranga. There you go. <laughs> in the movie. She's not a ranger. She's, she's a rang, Ranga. Rang, ranga. Well, yeah, that's it. Anyway, Just he's it, a redhead. He's in the a Australian gender. in the Australian English uh I guess hybrid we've got down here is you either put an 8 in everything or an o at the, at the end of so for example, if I'm going to the service station, I'm going to the servo. I'm not got going it. with David, I'm going with Dave O. He's a Ranga. Okay. She, Anyway, she has freaking red hair. It would not have been hard. You don't have to recast. It's like you have to cast somebody with black hair. Just dye the freaking actress's hair black. Like, it's not hard. And it's a major part of her character throughout the whole series. Anyway, it's so inconsequential. Like, they changed almost the entire plot of that whole movie. (laughs) And I'm like, I get it. I see why they did it. It's more entertaining for the movie. None of that bothers me. They changed her freaking hairstyle. The other one, the second one is Harry freaking potter so in the books it's mentioned over and over and over and over how he has green eyes just like his mother and everyone who sees him is like oh i would know you know lily potter's son anywhere though you have her eyes you know and her green eyes blah 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 blah. and the actress who played her had green eyes and it was this whole thing and then daniel radcliffe's eyes are the most crystal sky blue you've ever seen and you know it zooms in on them and shows them and they really accentuate his bright blue eyes in many 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 shots 
and eye color is not a hard thing to change. You can put contacts in, you can, you know, it's not that hard to put in a contact to give a, an actor green eyes. You don't have to recast or cast a green eyed actor. So that's my, that's my bitchy <laughs> is that when there's something simple like that, that you could be true to the source text and it's, it's not an, a relevant thing it's a part of their character that's mentioned as character development and you could easily do it but you don't that's my bitchy other things don't bother like the most recent wrinkle in time movie um that came out meggie the main character she, she was cat uh, they uh, cast an african-american girl to play her she's white in the books but that doesn't matter it doesn't have anything to do with her character so i'm like sure have an african-american girl play meggy it's not that big of a deal it's not a part of her character but little things like that i don't know there's i'm sure there's a million other examples but those are the ones i can one think that of. one that springs to mind is m night Shyamalan's dumpster fire of an attempt to make uh avatar, avatar? yeah uh, it's like okay so it's a seemingly asian community there are fuck all asian actors in right. this movie. it's like yeah. it's just like if you're gonna like i have never seen a live action, a decent live action rendition of an anime made yet. And I might be wrong, but that was an, a public excretion of a movie. It's the same as the actual live action Dragon Ball movie. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, you've got this Caucasian dude who like, you know, it was just, I mean, he did fine, but the movie itself was horrible writing. Whitewashed. Um, they were it, whitewashed. It was, it was, well, it was shit. You know? I never really grew up with, I like, I never, my brother watched Dragon Ball, but I just wasn't oh, in Dragon Ball. But I watched the live action movie because I'm a huge fan of James Marsters, who was Spike in the Buffy series. Yeah, that's a and good he, wow. Yeah, he plays the green guy, Pic- Piccolo? Is Piccolo, that? yeah. I'm going to sound like an idiot. I'm not a big Dragon Ball, but I think he played, but he's almost unrecognizable because he's in like makeup, you know, green makeup for the live action movie. But I'm a huge fan of James Marsters from Buffy, uh, Spike from Buffy. And so I watched it so I could watch him. But from all accounts, it wasn't, that wasn't a good movie. They got 2.5 out of a, out of a hundred and like a 12% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. So (laughs) it's like, I just, you know, at least, so you fast forward to like the, the live action of uh, Aladdin. Uh Uh-huh. Now I haven't seen it, but I've heard podcasts. Oh man. Podcast talk about recasting a sympathetic villain they made jafar hot he's like a hottie 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 um they recast jafar and and because it's this whole thing it's this whole thing of like making villains that people want to that that people love like loki maleficent cruella you know given um jafar a glow up you know for the I, just, I never like you had a chance to tell a movie, I know they're remakes, but you had a chance to tell like a movie something different. So they could have told it from the perspective of Jasmine, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I know they give her an extra song in the movie, but she's still this damsel in distress. And I was like, well, make her the hero, make Aladdin the bitch boy, you know? <laughs> I don't know. But these are just, yeah. I mean, now we're just writing fan fiction, but you're exactly well, right. You said you hadn't seen a good anime live action. Have you seen shots from the cowboy bebop that's that's being made have you seen that? no i haven't seen no it looks great 
like it looks great um the guy shoot the guy who's playing cowboy bebop is asian which is amazing he's from harold and kumar um he's not the indian one but the other one uh harold he plays harold okay <laughs> he's been he's been in all those um well he was in american pine stuff too john cho john cho john cho sorry i had to look it up it was gonna bother me um but he's playing spike so i mean it looks amazing so if you were a cowboy bebop person that looks like it might be good i, I hope don't know. so i hope so because it might have been, might have i didn't been mind good. cowboy bebop and i've got a bit of editing to do i've got to prepare for a music interview for tuesday but i might just watch some anime instead yeah <laughs> get ready but, but my my um i'll keep it I guess a story related uh, okay. bitchy this week. Hmm. You know, but also what pisses me off is that, as you said, the movies that keep out small details but are important. Mm-hmm. I mean, Lord of the Rings, they could have brought it, they should have brought in Tom Bombadil in some way. Oh, shape man. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like you, they made the first game, The Fellowship of the Ring, and you play as Frodo, Aragorn, and Gandalf, and it's like an RPG style. As opposed to the the second two, which is all fighting, which is which is fine, but what I don't understand is like based off the the movie, Tom Bombadil has a, a prominent role in that game, yet even in the director's cut, he's not mentioned once in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I was like, well, Peter Jackson, you've just made cinematic history, but come on, mate, you know, from your bone yeah. here. Um, no, yeah, he's a boss character and that's probably the most tragic omission from those remakes is the missing Tom Bombadil. I think, but my bitch is um, movies, remakes that are done that don't feel like, um, or don't have that seeming feel of the, the original like IP, you know, mm. it's like you, you get a, like you get a movie like the Watchmen, Zack Snyder, is a terrific storyteller. Like almost looks like a, a panel for panel shot of the, the comic. Fantastic. Oh yeah. Movie. And I know I it's an, people, you could open the Watchmen at any point and pause the movie and find the panel. Yeah, I mean, yes, it's a it's a it's a niche market when you do it that way. I get it, and you know you want to have these story like storytelling done in such a way. Like what Taika Waititi did for Ragnarok, mm. it was Masters of the Universe esque in terms of like, but they used um like the whole planet hulk thing like they took story arcs from different things like you know, planet hulk hella in the comics she was actually loki's daughter not mm-hmm, the sister mm-hmm. so like you've still got raw content that is you know usable i guess you could use it's relevant mm-hmm. but it's not too far from the source material so you still get that feeling for it but movies that are made that just don't feel like it's like, well, hang on. So you've got source material from here. Say it's a, a comic-based movie and it feels nothing like it. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so like the Iron Fist series. Oh yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you're not you're not you're not portraying Iron Fist well. What you're Iron Fisting your audience. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, bro, what are you doing? Like, hey, don't kink shame. Some people are into that. <laughs> I'm not kink shaming. I'm. I am a showrunner shaming and we i have a few guests coming up that uh, uh in a few were actually it would have played by then um uh miss honey anal uh she's a practicing sex worker porn star 
cool. we, we had a good discussion about kink and um it, it was it was interesting and like um last week the episode with um emily sexton uh, emily duncan come out about the sealed section podcast so like mm-hmm. being actively open talking about sex and stuff so definitely i don't shame anyone here right that i was I've spoken, just kidding <laughs> yeah the only the only shaming i'm doing is to this the writers who absolutely butchered this ip for me um to rip i say it's dead <laughs> in the water it's like iron fist got fisted he didn't get a third luke series. Cage? did you like luke cage yeah, Luke Cage was 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 good. I thought the the whole Defenders thing was a little bit, yeah, cheesy. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite of those series was Daredevil, hands down. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, the first series of um, oh, uh, what's her name? Jessica Jones. Jessica Jones. That was really uh-huh. good too. Yeah, that, with David Tennant. Yeah. From Doctor Who. There you go. You see, you see the gift that keeps on giving. Bringing it all back around. <laughs> Actually, and season three of Jessica Jones was pretty good as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But like, I don't know. It's like, and also, mob, big, big mobs, big like studios, publishers that add a character in or make a change just because it seems PC. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay. Um, for example, we're going to make uh, Valkyrie buy. What reason? Just because. I'm like, okay. I mean, cool. It makes no difference. I mean, <laughs> you want to be inclusive? I mean, you've got people from different planets, different colours. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it just didn't seem like the way to execute bringing in someone, a member of the LBGTQI plus community. Sometimes, you know, those are stunt. It's like a stunt. Like it makes it mm. seem like it doesn't have any, like you said, no character or narrative function it's a look at how woke we are you know it's it's sort of a stunt to you know it's like it's kind of like overcompensate i'm like well i mean her sexuality has nothing to do with her kicking ass in outer space really but Mm -hmm. okay cool why not so that's my bitchy my bitchy is like in in authenticity in good storytelling that's come sometimes remakes like that it's it's almost it feels like you're watching a fan fiction of an an ip like oh yeah the same world and the characters are the name the same but it's all you know it's changed so much and it so doesn't have that authenticity it's it's more like watching a fan fiction of a of a a property rather than a a, something original and and interesting it's not it's not like you can take you got the keys to the ip boat you can go out take it for a spin it's just kind of like here's a photo of it and you tell me (laughs) how good it is yeah uh, So I know I get it, but yeah, like it, it's inauthentic, inauthentic storytelling, and I don't know. It just it makes me lose. It makes me cringe. I like credible. Oh yeah, fans. I like fans credible. Get that out a mile away. Yeah, and like I don't know. My one of my our favorite series, Scrubs. So I ah. get what that I get what they were trying to do in season nine. Mm-hmm. Um, but like it's like it should have just been buried at season eight. It was a fantastic way to go out and. Uh, Although season nine has some good moments, I just I think that it just seemed like a push from the studio. Perhaps I'm not sure. Yeah, I like Dave Franco. Like I really like yeah. him. Well, oh, yeah, he's such a smug, arrogant persona in that show. Yeah, Bachinga, Bachinga, I'm bulletproof, baby. <laughs> um, but one of one of my favorite Scrubs jokes was in. 
a season nine's Kelso. He's so they portray him as like this dirty old, you know, doctor. Are you gonna hit that Bob like a train with no brakes? That makes me lose it every time. <laughs> it's like you horny old prick. <laughs> yeah. Like a train with no brakes. <laughs> I like how um unashamed Kelso is of just everything in his life. He just he just blatantly states, you know. He's well, a, I'm off. My gay son is making a musical about how much he hates me. So <laughs> it's doing really well. <laughs> like, he's just so like. I would have liked to have met his gay son and Elliot's brother, Barry. That would have been cool. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened at that pool party? <laughs> yes. Now that's a fan fiction that I would, that I would be willing. We'll I have to put our brains together. Um, but uh, no, in, in, in time, we'll get onto that. But I just. I think we might wrap things up there shortly. Is there anything that you want to go out on or anything that you want to say? Uh, I don't guess. I really, I had a really good time. Oh, I, this is not for, this is just storytelling pro tip for your podcast. Um, You need to find somebody who maybe would specializes in Dungeons and Dragons. D&D. D&D. I play D&D just, you know, with friends we play, but um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert <laughs> in D&D or anything. Well, if you're but, a member of the D&D community, can you help me put the call out and try and find someone uh, who might be able to, maybe you might, be sure. able to co- you might be able to co-host an episode with me or something? Yeah, no, I have, I I know people who like, they've been playing for years and years and years. And you could be my D&D translator. Of, yeah, <laughs> they've done a lot of research. But if you're talking about storytelling, now that is... <clears throat> that's <clears throat> sorry live storytelling is what that is well then you can help me do an episode but i'll put the i'll put the call out to everyone and you too sarah you can help me find an awesome uh an awesome person to you can help me um co-host that one if you like but okay i'll just uh say for now um thanks for coming on this is episode 54 as always everyone you know where to interact you know leave me an ep- a review on Apple podcast email the show if you want to be on and uh Yeah, just wanted to say thank you for your time today, Sarah, and uh, see you all in the next one. Bye for now.